The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. Now this episode comes out on the brink of a major anniversary here in Seattle. 50 years ago tomorrow, November 24th, on the eve of Thanksgiving, a man known only as D.B. Cooper boarded a plane in Portland headed for Seattle. What follows is a tale of danger, extortion, and ended in hundreds of thousands of missing dollars. I sat down with Museum of Flight docent Mike Burns to get the story. So this guy in a black suit and a white shirt and a black tie, he walked up to the ticket counter in Portland, PDX, and he bought a one-way ticket from Portland um, to Seattle, to SeaTac. And he paid $18.50 for the one-way ticket. Uh, it was about a, a dollar in tax, so it was $20. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, back then, there weren't x-ray machines and um, body pat-downs and metal detectors and stuff like that. Uh, he had a, a, a small, cheap kind of leather case uh, walk through, you know, quote unquote airport security, uh, and uh, and got on the plane. Um, the plane was a 727, um, very much like the plane that we have in the uh, aviation pavilion. So you can kind of see um, what what that plane looks like. The unique thing about that airplane is uh, it's equipped with a a set of uh, stairs that that fold down from the tail section. Uh, I think the only other airplane like that at the time was a DC-9, um, and so uh, so so those those stairs become important uh, later in the story. Now those stairs, what is what is their purpose? Is that how people got on and off the plane? Because you're right, this is not something I think of when I think of aircraft. I think of climbing in through the front. Were they for cargo? So the jetway was not terribly new uh, in in '71. In fact, Portland. Uh, a PDX, Portland International Airport, had recently been uh, remodeled and they put uh, jetways on all their concourses. Um, but the 727 actually designed to service smaller airports that did not have jetways. Uh, and so, you know, places in Mexico, islands in the Caribbean, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so three engines, so you can fly over water, uh, but then a set of mobile stairs so that you could you could land pretty much wherever, uh, get out or get back on, uh, and, and, and like that. <laughs> it's a pretty nice selling point because we've all seen, hopefully, the, the pictures of back in the day when they would wheel a set of stairs up to the door and have people walk down. Your your airplane has a, a staircase built into it. That Yeah, a mobile staircase. That's, that's great. And then, you know, obviously, it would either be a short walk uh, you know, to customs or uh, to the terminal, or you know, or maybe a bus ride if you if you're way out, you know, at the end of the of a runway somewhere. Uh, so that's a huge selling point. When we think of hijacking today, 
we we get a very specific event. We think about 9-11. Uh, but hijackings pre-9-11 were very different than what we think of. Can you just talk a little bit about the world of air hijacking in the in the 60s and 70s? Hijacking was not something that was that uncommon. Actually, it was fairly regular. There were very, very few in the United States for some particular reasons, but the purpose was different. Um, it was usually, you know, fly me to Cuba or... Um, release this release these prisoners from you know some jail somewhere uh it, it was it was more politically oriented yeah so this guy he bought this ticket in portland and got on the plane took the seat uh way in the back of the plane uh, row 18 uh and he was set, sat on the, the starboard side and the plane i think there were 33 passengers uh six crew and uh that model of, of 727 could handle about 100 uh, individuals on board, souls on board, as they say, uh, and uh, that includes uh, flight crew and, and, and passengers. So, so the, uh, the actual uh, main cabin would have been pretty sparsely populated with individuals. This, this surprises me. Yeah, so I mean, this was, this was the day uh, before Thanksgiving. I think that surprises me too, because I, I was thinking, well, gosh, you'd think you'd have a lot more people traveling. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe they were already at their points of destination as far as Thanksgiving and all that goes. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. The flight took off from Portland at, you know, three, three o'clock in the afternoon or something. So maybe it was a weird time. Or I, I don't know that. I don't know that detail. I don't know why. Uh, I'm not sure it really matters in the story uh, that the plane was. Essentially, the plane was fairly unpopulated. So anyway, the plane took off just like normal, and um, they had already uh, back then they would have already had a, a drink service uh, as they were uh, taxiing and, and getting ready for takeoff. Uh, that was a thing uh, back then. Um, and then uh, the airplanes were a lot more. Obviously, the flight attendants were they were called stewardesses back then, but uh, they were way more way more focused on the service side, you know, of things. Uh, so lots of drinks flowing and, you know, and, and stuff like that. Um, and uh, this Especially guy, with only 33 people on board. <laughs> exactly. And I don't know what the dispersal of, it did have a first class and I don't know what the dispersal was. It, again, for, this, for the story, I don't think it really matters. Um, but uh, the, I guess the point is back then there, there wasn't, and in, in certainly on this flight, there was no assigned seating. Um, when in fact, with the, uh, his plane ticket is in FBI custody, and there, there are photos of it. You can find them online. And uh, it, it just shows his name, the amount that he paid, and then the, I think the gate or something like that. And the name that he used on, on his ticket was Dan Cooper. Now, was, this is before the time of computers verifying your every detail before you buy a ticket. So... Yeah, well, and I think even a little like, I don't know if South, Southwest is still like this, but, you know, they, they would, you know, you just get whatever seat you wanted. You just get on who first come first serve, and it was kind of like that. Um, but it's interesting that Cooper um, chose the last row. Um, it, later in the story, this is going to become pretty important. You know, for one, very few people uh, would have seen, really have gotten a good look at him because he was in the back uh and then although also if you know if you're 
man, I've been on six, seven hour flights sitting right next to somebody and I, I, I couldn't even tell you what they look like. I mean, it, you know, you're in your own world and you're doing your thing and, you know, you're going to your place. And yeah. So, so no fault of anybody, you know, on the plane for not getting a perfect description of this guy. Um, most of the people on board did not even know uh, the plane was being hijacked. In fact, obviously the two flight attendants and the flight crew, uh, all, you know, all three flight attendants eventually, but and the flight crew knew, but very few of the other, if, if any of the other passengers knew that it was actually being hijacked. A flight from Portland to Seattle is very short. I've done it and it's pretty quick, even by our standards. So he would have to move pretty quick to do this. Why don't you lay out kind of the timeline of this hijacking? Story goes that as the flight was uh, in cruise headed towards Seattle, he handed an envelope uh, to the flight attendant and um, she immediately put it in her purse uh, because I think she thought that she was just getting a hit on by another another businessman. Um, and and a few minutes later, he actually implored her uh, to open the, the envelope, and she did. And inside that envelope, there was a typewritten note, and uh, and it said, "This is a hijacking. I have a bomb." Upon arrival in Seattle, please provide $200,000 cash and four parachutes. Upon delivery, I will release the passengers and non-essential crew. And she probably gasped a little bit uh, and, and looked at Cooper, at which point Cooper revealed in his case uh, it, it, what she described as sticks of dynamite, fires, and uh, a time, and she gave the message back to Cooper, and then either called or visited the uh, the flight crew. Uh, in in back then, it would have been the cockpit. Nowadays, we say flight deck, but either way, uh, that that this plane was being hijacked. Very businesslike transaction. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my note telling you that uh, I'm holding us all hostage. Apparently, it, he was a charmer, you know, even though he's he's threatening the lives of, you know, 30 some odd people, um, you know, he, he, he did it in kind of a, a, a groovy, cool way. You know, he didn't stand up with a firearm, you know, he didn't grab someone and, you know, threaten their, their immediate life. Um, you know, this was all a pretty undercover operation. And you brought up a good point in how you described this. There are things we know and things we don't know. We have no idea if he actually had a bomb or if that was just the dummy or, or whatnot. I think it's kind of strange to have a timer on a bomb on a plane that you're on. But I guess if you're if you're committed to if you're committing to it, then you're committing to it one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, you can you can go round and round in into all these crazy places of. Was it a bomb? Was it a real bomb? Was it a fake bomb? Uh, she described the dynamite sticks as red. And if you've ever seen a picture of a piece of dynamite, they're not red. They're usually just brown paper. But it doesn't really matter whether it was real or not. Also, I, I think back in the day, I think things have changed now. So I don't get any funny ideas. But Back in the day, if someone said that they were going to hijack the plane, the idea was to placate the hijacker, do whatever they said, fly 
to wherever you could if you had the fuel for it or refuel if you had to, maybe something you could interrupt the hijacking there. Um, but basically just go along with whatever the hijacker wanted. Uh, and, and that's exactly what they did in this case. So they landed at SeaTac in Seattle. This is the day before Thanksgiving then and, and had to carry out this person's demands. Yeah, so there's a there's a little wrinkle in there that you know the at SeaTac they just didn't have two hundred thousand dollars sitting around to give to this guy. So so the plane actually uh, went into orbit, air, airplane orbit, <laughs> and uh, circled for a while. The captain told the passengers that they had a minor technical issue, but it was nothing to worry about. They did a few lazy circles uh, in the pattern, and then um, while the FBI was rounding up uh, the money. And uh, I think they went to a local C-First bank and, and there, there may have been another couple other banks in there. And the parachutes, which I think they got from, what's now, I think the, the Issaquah uh, uh, Parachute Training Center or whatever. And uh, so all local stuff. <laughs> and then they um, delivered the money and the parachutes and he released all the passengers and two of the stewardesses but wanted one to remain, and then they took off. So he has the money. I do think that's fascinating. Like, <laughs> we hear these demands, like, where does this money come from? So the FBI is paying up, and where does he want to go next? He obviously doesn't want to stay on the ground if he's keeping pilots and flight attendants on board, or a flight attendant. From SeaTac, uh, Cooper wanted to go to Mexico. They were now fully loaded with fuel, uh, and um, there was some discussion between uh, Cooper and the pilots uh, that the, the the 727 didn't have the range to to make it to Mexico, and they made a they I think they made an agreement that they would then uh, refuel in Reno, and then the plane took off for Reno. So so now on board, just keeping everybody up to date here. Now on board we have the Skyjacker Cooper, um, we have uh, one flight attendant, and then a pilot, a co-pilot. At the of the day, you would say co-pilot, uh, and then the flight engineer. And modern airplanes now usually don't have a flight engineer. That's all all that fuel balancing and everything. That's that's all done by a, a computer. So the five of them basically headed south. But there's another wrinkle in the story. So at this point now, um, the entire flight crew is is has been ordered into the cockpit. So they're all there. Um, and Cooper's in the back. And the flight engineer notices that the rear air stairs deployment indicator has illuminated. And for the common individual, that just means the door's not locked anymore. That back door's not locked anymore. So that staircase, that mobile staircase, that selling point has been opened in, in the middle, in midair. Well, almost. It's not locked shut. There's another indicator that shows that it's locked open. And my understanding is that second indicator never illuminated. At this point, the flight crew now, which is all in the, in the cockpit, they're unsure really of what's happening here. Um, you know, obviously that's a, that would be a massive warning light if, the, if, if they knew that those stairs weren't locked shut anymore. Uh, there's a second indicator that shows that the stairs are locked open in the complete down position. 
Um, but my understanding is that the second light showing that it was locked down was not it was not illuminated. But it doesn't really matter. Um, even if those air stairs are halfway deployed, uh, you could still someone could still walk down them and jump off uh, in flight. Flight crew stayed in the cockpit for the remainder of the flight uh, to Reno. They land with the air stairs partially deployed. The air stairs are damaged on landing. They hit the runway. There are minor repairs that need to happen to the air stairs. They're banged up a bit, but it's not it, it, it's not a complete disaster. Um, and uh, they open the cockpit door and they look and Cooper's gone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I know this was a bit of a cliffhanger ending, and we'll be back in two weeks with part two of the story, where Mike will share not only the rest of what happened on the day of the hijacking, but the work the FBI has done over the past 50 years to try and figure out who the heck D.B. Cooper is. Special thank you to our donors, those who've been able to give financially to the podcast. Your dollars keep this show going, though if one of you giving is D.B. Cooper using that stolen money, that'd be quite a story indeed. If you'd like to become a donor, head to museumofflight.org podcast and click the yellow donate button. Another way to support the show is to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. On your next visit to the Museum of Flight, make sure you stop in the Aviation Pavilion to check out the Boeing 727 on display there, the type of aircraft that Cooper hijacked. We'll be talking more about what you can find here at the museum related to Cooper in the next episode, so I don't want to spoil it, but it's certainly worth the visit for some of the photo ops alone. You can contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>